Father in heaven, thank you for who you are. I thank you that we were able this morning to partake in the Lord's Supper. And Lord, sometimes we can take that for granted, but what an incredible privilege to join with the church of the ages and to celebrate and and also to engage in the reality of the death. And then we understand the resurrection as well of Jesus. Thank you for that. I thank you that we could do that with our friends from the Ukraine. Thank you that your church is bigger than us. Thank you for the privilege of being able to even come to this assembly, to this place with torn up parking lots and yet have as our center Jesus Christ. And may that always be the case. And then, Lord, I pray for two families in our church that are grieving this week. Pray for the family of Jema Hottenstein. And you took her to be with you this week, Lord, or this past week. And on one level, we're thankful for that because, as Paul said, it's far better. And yet the sorrow that follows is real, so I pray for your comfort for that family. And then also for the family of Henry Lancaster, who also suffered. And I thank you again that you've, you've relieved him of that. You've brought him into your presence. And we pray for his family and for our church as we miss two of our loved ones. And yet we look forward to that great day, Lord, when the gates of hell will be crushed and when the resurrection will be real. So it's to that day, Lord, that we strive and that we look forward to, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, this morning we continue in our series that Mark entitled Enigma. And since I was preaching this morning, I thought I'd better look up Enigma again in the dictionary. It's kind of one of those words that's enigmatic, you know, um, to me. And Mark gave a good definition, but when I looked at it, it was perplexing and ambiguous. And if you've been with us the last couple of weeks or months, <clears throat> there's this section of Matthew is typical of Jesus' early ministry in that there was some level of ambiguity, that he didn't come and everyone said, oh, yeah, we know who you are, we love you, we're following you, you're our man. People were confused, and they were there was this sense of enigma and ambiguity about Jesus That is intriguing. Now, the text we're going to look at this morning, I hope your Bibles are open to Matthew 16, because uh, I think it's one of the greatest passages in all of Matthew for sure, and and I think in the New Testament, and frankly, I think in all the Bible. It's where it appears, at least in my reading of it, that Matthew, as inspired by the Holy Spirit, gives a little relief to the tension of enigma, whatever enigma is. And there's some very clear statements that are mentioned in this text. And clear decisions to be made based on those statements. And then there is a little enigma in there as well with some word symbols that we've struggled with and that the church has divided over through the years. But the title of the sermon that I've given is Who in the World is Jesus? So that's going to be the first question we'll deal with, which is, by the way, no small question. And then the second question will be, what in the world is he doing? So in the who in the world is Jesus, we start with verse 13. And and I hope you were here last week, and I know everybody wasn't. If you weren't, I would encourage you to get a tape of Nate's sermon because he did a nice job with this text that leads up to the passage we're looking at this morning. And for those of you that were here, you remember the unbelief of the Pharisees and the Sadducees who came to Jesus and said, give us a sign, as if that would have made any difference. There was no sign Jesus could have given them that would have convinced them. And Jesus said, here's the sign you got, it's Jonah. And they were like, what? And obviously that didn't convince them at all. And then, and this may have been a little bit of the perplexing part of, of the sermon last week in that text, is the disciples, Jesus' guys, you know, his boys, they, they forgot the bread. You know, they just, oh, we forgot the bread. And Jesus said, 
you forgot the bread, and then they're wondering what's going to happen. And Jesus said, don't you remember those 5,000 men that I fed? Don't you remember the 4,000 men? How, how little faith you have, disciples, and I'm pretty good at judging the disciples, realizing that if it was me, I would have been probably worse than them. And then the text of last week ended in a pretty sobering way. <clears throat> in verse 11, it says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the point seems to be that as the chronicle of Jesus' life has come in this book of Matthew, there's not much recognition of who he is. His enigmatic persona seems to continue to be there. And heads are being scratched. And if you hadn't read the rest of it, you would say, Where's some clarity? I'd like a little clarity, please. Let's get the enigma sign down and put up something that's a little less ignorant, in it, it, whatever that is. <laughs> well, now that's going to happen in this text. So look at verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, which is, it's a city in the far north region of the Israelite area. <clears throat> and Israel was controlled by Rome at this time. But, and, and the name of the city betrays that it, it really wasn't a Hebrew city. Um, Caesar was probably Caesar Augustus and Philip was one who probably named it after Caesar Augustus and it was, it was given to Herod and they worship, uh, the Canaanites worship Baals and the, the Greeks worship their mythological gods. It was nobody's sense of a city of God at all. And, and that's where they were. They were in the far regions, almost out of the land of the people of God. And then Jesus asked his disciples and asked a very interesting question. He says, who do people say? That the Son of Man is. And by Son of Man, I think he means himself. So, so he says, you know, I'm just kind of curious. What's the word on the street? What, what do people say? Who do they say that I am? And, and I think the disciples were pretty pumped. I think they were looking for their uh, George Barna books, you know, or their Gallup polls. And, and they said, all right, here's the most recent data, hot off the press. Here's what people are saying about you, Jesus. They're saying, some are saying that you're John the Baptist. Now, the John the Baptist testimony is a bit interesting because it wasn't long previous and you're familiar with john the baptist the end of his life was his head was removed from his body and in most cases when that happens maybe in all cases but i haven't studied all cases in most cases that's the end you're done you're history and so how could he be john the baptist and they probably thought like herod thought this mysterious person could be the reincarnation or the resurrection maybe of john the baptist now that would be pretty bizarre or others have said you're Elijah, that famous and prominent Old Testament prophet who perhaps was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, certainly got a lot of press in the Old Testament literature. And he was a guy, you remember at the end of his life, it's this mysterious end of Elijah's life. He goes up to heaven, and I remember we used to sing in a chariot of fire just because that was cool and that, whatever that song was. And most likely the scripture says it was a whirlwind. But either way, it was, this is kind of bizarre, right? I mean, the guy is gone, and what happened? Did he die? Where did he go? Somewhere to the presence of God. Probably the prophets even picked up that nuance that someday Elijah was going to return, and he was going to be the forerunner of Messiah. And, and a significant character, or others said he's Jeremiah, who was one of the champion of the Old Testament writing prophets, the weeping prophet, or maybe he's some other prophet. In any case, here's the fact, if we pick up from last week's beginning sermon, he's in a league with LeBron James, you know, as far as prophets go. I mean, he was not just your ordinary person. He was bigger, better, smarter, stronger. He went, he ranked up with the hero of the heroes from an Israelite point of view. So, so their, their Gallup polls said, Jesus, you're doing not bad in the polls. 
You're, you're handling yourself okay. They did miss the Pharisees. Remember, some of the Pharisees thought he was from the devil, Beelzebul. So they, they, they said, well, I should leave that out. Let's go with the pole part that we like. You know, you can make numbers say whatever you want. So you think Jesus was content with that? Well, let me suggest you read the next verse. He said to them, and I think this was the point of the text. I think the point of the text was not, tell me what George Barna or what the Gallipole says. The point of the text was this. He said to them, but, every good text has one of them. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. You told me about all those people and what the polls say, but I've got a question for you. And he says, who do you, and by the way, the, the construction in the original language doesn't just suggest this, it demands it, that there's an emphatic you. You could make it a capital U and make it bold, and you could make it like the finger of God is coming to those 12 disciples and pointing in their face and saying, I got a question for you. Skip the polls. Who do you? I'm going to try to point to everybody. The same way I didn't get. How do you know I didn't get you? Who do you say that Jesus is? And, as I, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about this text in preparation for this sermon. And of all the questions you could ever ask on planet Earth, there is no question that has more significance than this question. Who do you say Jesus is? Answer that question. And then I can answer a whole lot of other questions about what your life means, where you're going, what's going to happen to you. There's a ton of questions that get answered when you answer the question, who in the world is Jesus Christ? Who do you say I am? And don't leave this service, even if you say, boy, I wish Mark was here, or whatever else you may say, don't miss the point of this text that's pointing the finger certainly at the disciples, but that finger goes through the centuries of time and comes to College Park Church on the 11th day of July, I think, in 2000, whatever we are, 10, and says, who do you say Jesus is? Why don't you go home and think about it for the afternoon? Wouldn't you love that? We'll just dismiss service. I can't do that. Well, then I love the next statement, don't you? Simon Peter replies, and I'm, again, if you were a prophet or the son of a prophet, you would have prophesied that it's probably going to be Peter that's going to answer this question. It's kind of like Peter, somebody asks a question, he says, hey, meet me. And then you're like, oh, no, that's Peter. Who knows what he's going to say? Because, I, because that's just kind of the way he was. And here's what he says, and there's eight words, and they're eight of the most profound words In all of scripture, in answer to the question of who did you say that I am? And here's what Peter says. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Let that soak in for a minute. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. That's who you are. Now, let me give you a little bit of a Hebrew background to this, which most of you probably know. That word Christ is a translation of a Hebrew word that we've transliterated into Messiah. It's the word Mashiach that comes out to be Messiah. And, and he probably didn't say, you're the Christ. He probably said, you're the Mashiach or some sort of Hebrew Aramaic thing like that. And, and what that would have meant to the disciples and to the first century Jews, certainly, would have been, you are the one and only. There's not a bunch of you. You're the only one. You are the son of David with a capital S. You are the ultimate son of David. You're the one with the right to rule on the only throne that matters on planet Earth, and that's the throne of God. <clears throat> You're the Messiah. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. 
And you are the triumphant victor, the king, the sovereign one. You are the savior of your people. You are the Christ. That's who you are. And Israel had been anticipating and looking forward to the day when this Messiah Christ would come. And Peter, in essence, points his finger back at Jesus and said, here's who you are. You are the Christ. That's who you are. But then he goes on. I'm glad he does. And he says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And when he said son in his context, it would have been a little bit different than the way we think of son. Because I have a son and I'm older than my son and will always be older than my son. And yet when he talked about son, it meant one that shares in the character of or one who has the same essence as. So when he said you're the son of the living God, it means you are of the same character as your father. And your father is not just God, because there's a lot that claim to be God. He's the living God in contrast to and and remember, he's up there in Caesarea Philippi. And that's like out of the, almost out of the realm of Jewish and of God's favor of Israel. He's, they're way out there. And and he's making this claim in the middle of this pagan city that you're the God and you're the son of the God who's not just any God. He's the God who is alive. He's vibrant. He's active. He's, he's working in this world. He's not some sort of an idol that's made of gold and silver and has no breath and doesn't really do anything. He's the living God. He said this. He said, Jesus, you are the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And the inference then is that if I believe that you're the son of the living God, then I have, and Peter apparently did this in his life, he said, I bow my knee to you. You're God, I'm not, and you're the one that I owe my total allegiance and my total life to. <clears throat> I forgot the click. Um, they said he was a good person, the God man. Let me show you the difference between those two. <clears throat> The difference between Jesus is like Elijah, which would be pretty cool. He's like John the Baptist. He's like Jeremiah. That would be, that would be, he's like us, but he's better. You know, again, to the LeBron James thing. Quite frankly, I played basketball in high school. Could tell you're all impressed. LeBron James plays basketball. Although now he's the villain, so we probably shouldn't talk about him in church. And when I played basketball and he plays basketball, there's not much similarity. Although, on, in the day, you know, the shot went, eh, ah, never mind. See, everybody has their own fantasies. <laughs> We're, he, he's bigger, he's better, he's faster, he's stronger, but he's not totally unlike me. Now, here's what the reality of Jesus is. He's not just bigger, better, stronger than you. He's not just your good luck charm. He's not just the, the rabbit foot that, you know, hey, maybe if I kind of play this Jesus game, that'll kind of be a little bit better for me in life than if I don't play the Jesus game. Maybe even when I die, something good will happen. I don't know. But Jesus is, you know, he's like me, but he's, but he's better than me. I mean, certainly he's better than me. Here's what the proclamation of Peter is. And here's the question for you this morning. If Jesus is like you, you're in big trouble. Even if he's bigger, better, and smarter and everything else than you. But if he's not like you, and he's really God, and he's truly God, come in the flesh, then the whole world is different, and your whole life is different. It's radically different. Because now you come face to face with this person whose name is Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, and your life must change. It can't do anything but change. And so I want you to reflect on this question this morning, because now we're going to move into the rest of the text. Who do you say Jesus is? And don't say, well, hey, I'm a member of College Park. And I even wasn't overly grumpy when I came in on the gravel parking lot today. (laughs) That's me. I'm one of those people. You know, I can handle that. 
here's the real question. It isn't, how did you do in the grumpy parking lot? Or wait a minute, the parking lot's not grumpy. The people on it are. How did you do with that? The question is, how do you do with Jesus? Is he just makes you feel better on the parking lot? Or is he the savior of your soul? Is he the true and rightful God of gods and Lord of lords? And if he is, then your life changes radically. Well, moving quickly to the second point. So if that's who he is and that's what Peter said he is, then then here's a good question. So what's he doing? So this Jesus is God. What's he doing? And by the way, Peter misunderstood some of Jesus, even with that great proclamation. You go to the next paragraph and you're going to find when Jesus told him, I've got to die and rise again. And Peter said, no way, Messiah. You're not doing that. My definition of Messiah is you're going to come and you're going to smash people and you're going to rule and you're going to reign. You're not going to die. And you remember what Jesus said to him? He said, get me behind me, Satan. And I'm like... Wait a minute. He just made this proclamation. He didn't understand the full totality of what he had even said. So the question is, Jesus, what are you doing in the world? And and look at verse verse 17, because he starts to explain. And Jesus answered him. And, you know, if I were the disciples, after Peter made his statement, I would have said, boy, that sounded like a good statement, especially coming from Peter, who sometimes doesn't always have the best answers. But I wonder if Jesus, that enigmatic Jesus, I wonder if he's going to somehow say, no, no, that wasn't right. Here's what Jesus said. Blessed are you. And that word blessed fits well in, a, in, a, in, the, in the Matthew context. You remember the Sermon on the Mount started off with those Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed means you're favored by God. That things are good, even though it's blessed are those that mourn, blessed are those that are suffer. And, and, and in the Old Testament, it says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Blessed is a good place to be. So I think they were saying, all right, Peter, you got it. Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, the son of Jonah, or perhaps Jonah's short for John. And then look at what he says, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. He said, Peter, before you break your arm back and patting yourself on the back, remember this. The reason you were able to make that profound statement of who Jesus Christ is, is because of the Father in the first place. Because God came to you and he opened your eyes, Peter, that were not the easiest eyes to open, quite frankly, like my eyes. And he gave you this sight and this sight that was then able to see me for who I am. And so the inference would be, so you ought to thank him because in the end of the day, it wasn't your profound mind, your profound senses. It was the father in heaven that gave you the revelation, the understanding of who I am. <clears throat> it reminds me of this just a couple weeks ago. We were on vacation in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, which is our family tradition. I, when I was in high school, we went to Myrtle Beach. And so we still go. We go to the same general condo. We're really a boring family. But my kids like it, and they're adults now, and they're willing to come, which to me is the essence of it all. So they come, we go. Or maybe it's we go and they come. That's what I used to think, but now it's the other way around. Well, one of the things that we do on vacation is my son and I go out in the ocean, and we talk, because that's what oceans are for, partly, and other things. And that was a tradition that's come around kind of recently. You know, finally, he's old enough that he thinks, hey, maybe dear old dad's worth talking to. And a couple of our conversations have been sort of like, you know, I mean, I'm struggling with my car finances. So I'm out there wondering, do I really want to be in the ocean having this conversation? (laughs) Well, this year, we had our annual conversation out in the ocean, you know, going over the waves. And as we're doing, I got a sunburn, so I get some merit, you know, pay for that. Um, and he, he, he talks to me about a friend of his that was an atheist. And, and I know my son. He's an engaging, kind of gregarious guy. And I can imagine he would talk to anybody that would talk to him. And this atheist didn't believe in Jesus, obviously. 
And he had said to my son, he said, you know, normally I don't talk to people like you because I look at people like you who believe in Jesus and that kind of thing is childish. That was a term he used. And if you're a 27-year-old guy, you know, pretty good shape, being called childish just doesn't fly very well. He said, because you're childish, because, you know, our minds, our senses, our perception tell us there is no God. And then you're playing this game of trying to play the pacifier. There's this Jesus Christ. Let me suck on that for a while because it makes me feel better. And the guy said to him, but you're a nice guy, so I'll still talk to you. And my son gave him, you know, all the rational defenses for here's why God's true and Jesus isn't. And he probably did a pretty good job. And then he said to me, you know, he didn't buy any of them. <laughs> and, and and I just taught a class in apologetics. So I thought, well, I guess it's no sense me giving you 10 more to give him, is it? I said, But I did say two things that I think maybe were from the Lord, at least I hope. At least at the end, it felt like that. I said, you know, here's two issues that guy has to deal with. One is he thinks that the only way he'll know anything is through flesh and blood. It has to be some sort of a material manifestation. Like the guy had said to him, if someone, if a 200-foot guy came and said, I am God, you must believe in me, then the guy said, I'll trust. And, you know, I want to say, he's not going to trust at a 400-foot guy. It's, he's going to have some sort of a rational explanation for what happened. And he's going, to, he's, going to, he's going to deny God until the day comes when the Father opens his eyes and when there's that revelation that causes him to be able to realize that God is true and all men are liars. Because our tendency is to want to defend ourselves and say, no, all men are true and we don't even know about God. So he had to wrestle with this spiritual world. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And if faith isn't brought into the Christ... And let me suggest that when you're talking to friends, etc. Faith is at the core of what it means to trust in Jesus, isn't it? I mean, that's what the word trust really comes from the same word as faith. And to say that we live in a world where there is no spiritual reality, to me, seems a bit naive. But I said there's also another issue that this guy has to deal with. He has to deal with the reality of who Jesus Christ is. And obviously he's going to blow that off and say, Jesus Christ is for Sunday school. I mean, it's for the kids that are over on that side of the building. That's what Jesus is for. The people in this auditorium should be more sophisticated than that. If you know, you could, you could buy that, perhaps, if you're not really committed to the faith, and if you're not really committed to who Jesus Christ is, the world is going to try to move you away from it. And as a matter of fact, I said to my son, you know, this is always the good thing. Pat him on the back and say, hey, who knows? Someday Jesus might use your words to draw this person to himself, which I believe. And he said, you know what? I think that's true. But he said, my friend said to me, my friend said to my son, I hope someday you grow up and you put off those childish things of your Christian faith and you come to the smarter side, the more sophisticated side. And then I'm the dad saying, I'm going to drown this kid. <laughs> And, you know, Jesus almost said that a couple times, didn't he? Better that a millstone be cast around their neck than they take one of my little ones away. That, here's what I believe, the Christian faith can stand the scrutiny of rationality, of empiricism, all those kind of things. But in the end of the day, here's the question, and it's the question for all of us. Who do you think Jesus is? And the answer is going to be, well, Jesus by the Father, has revealed himself to me, and that my mission then is to be a beacon of light to the world to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not the gospel of College Park. It's not the gospel of me. It's the gospel of Jesus, because he's the only one that can take blind eyes and make them see. And he did that for Peter. Man, what a pretty cool thing. So that's what God's doing in the world. He's revealing himself, and I'm glad he is. But then how is he doing this or how is he? And, and there's three metaphor words. And I, I wish I had like two hours. 
And I don't because there's bad parking lot out there and I got to get done on time. But there's three really cool words and I'm just going to mention them and I'm going to go through them real quickly. And if you want to talk more about them, email me or let's talk. There's the word rock that comes up in this text. There's the word gates that come, rock, gates, and what's the other? Keys, right. Rock, gates, keys. So I I think that we ought to change the name of our church. College Park Church. That's three words. It ought to be rock, gate, keys church, which I'm sure would attract a lot of people. They would say, yep, that's what it's all about. But you know what? I think it is all about rocks, gates, and keys. And I think if we could follow the analogy of Jesus or the allegory or the metaphor, whatever the right word is there, I think we could track with, okay, here's what you're doing in this world, Jesus. You're doing some pretty, pretty significant things. And it's under the umbrella of he's building his church. That's what he's doing. Now, by the way, there's a lot of controversy with all these verses, and I don't have time to get into the controversy. I'm going to kind of give you my view of the big punchline of each one of them, and hopefully that'll be helpful. So the first one is this. Here's what he says in verse 18. And Jesus said to Peter, I tell you, you are Peter, duh, (laughs) and upon this rock I will build my church. Now, let me tell you the punchline of that verse or that clause is I will build my church. Here's what he doesn't say. I might build my church. I'm going to give the construction project a really good effort and hopefully we'll build it. Hopefully we get enough money. I'm going to, I'm going to have them out there tearing up things. You see, the church is not buildings. It isn't that Jesus said, I'm going to build a whole bunch of buildings. It's, it's this, and it's a statement of affirmation and strong affirmation. I am, not I might, and if I am the God, if I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, when I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. I am going to build my church. And then he says this, and you're Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church. Which then begs the question, okay, what's the Peter and what's the rock? I think most of you know that the word Peter in Greek is Petros. You guys knew that, right? Even if you didn't, it's close enough. Petros, Peter. And the word for rock, now that's not quite as intuitive in Greek, is the word Petra. And probably you've heard that before. They're both similar words. One's neuter, one's masculine. One refers to, I mean, it is the name of Peter. The other is rock. And and apparently there's a word game that Jesus is saying. It could go like this if we were making it more contemporary and in English. You are rocky. Not the squirrel. Rocky Balboa, kind of rocky, you know. You're rocky, and upon this rock, I will build my church. And and the rock nuance, which, by the way, I'm into doing word pictures and and illustrations. So you know what's in this bag? Thank you. I I wanted it to be at least a little intuitive. It's a rock! It's out of my backyard. It's got dirt on it, so just skip that. But there's a rock. And Jesus says, rocky? Upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. It's going to be the foundation of my church. And there's been a lot of debate. Let me just tell you, and I think if you didn't believe this, you wouldn't be in this church. It's not the Pope. It's not that Peter's the first Pope. I think he is talking about Peter. And I think he's saying, Peter, you're going to be a significant foundation of my church. But the reason you're the foundation of my church is because of your confession. Because of your belief that you said, and not only said, but you believe that I am the Christos, the Christ, the Son of the living God. That kind of testimony really gives testimony to what the ultimate rock is, and that's Jesus Christ himself. So Peter's the human representative, certainly. 
and he's going to, there's going to be a line of Peters that are going to follow, of which I hope we're in them. And in that line of Peters who make confessions and give testimonies and give witness, we give witness, and that becomes the rock, which is ultimately Jesus Christ, and that's the foundation of his church. And you know what? At this time in the history of College Park, and I've been at this church for 22 years, and God's done phenomenal things every one of those 22 years, but this is a unique time. I mean, our gravel parking lot is just delightful in a different kind of a sense. The building is being rattled. It's a great time for us as the people of God to ask the question, what is church really all about anyway? Is it about having really nice parking lots for things being very convenient and very easy? And let me say, here's what it's about. It's about a rock, and that rock is the people of God giving testimony to the reality of the Christ, the Son of the living God, and the foundation of this church and of Christ's church is not on how cool our parking lots are and how good our buildings are and how easily things smooth, how smoothly they go. It's based on Jesus Christ and Him alone. And may that always be the case. And if that ever isn't the case, then let's quit changing parking lots, let's quit building buildings, and let's get out of here Because the basis of the church isn't how cool our buildings is, it's who who our Savior is. That's the rock. Well, then he goes from rock, and I've got got to move on. (laughs) Then he makes this next next metaphor he comes up with. He says, and I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I'm going to build my church, and that rock is going to be, it'll never fail, it'll be eternal. It's the reality of Peter's confession of who Jesus Christ is and the reality of who he is. And then he says this, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And of all my study, and I did put in a fair amount of study of this text, that was the part that just burned in my heart. And if you were listening to our songs this morning, they kind of themed around gates of hell. And that last song we sang of the kingdoms, and, and I haven't learned all the words of that song, but it's just like, man, the kingdom of God is going after the gates of Hades, and the gates of Hades or hell is not able to stand against the kingdom of God. It's not. And yet I'm going to tell you this, that there is no more formidable foe on planet Earth than the gates of Hades, the gates of hell. And I was going to bring a gate in. I had a gate in my backyard, but it looks so wimpy. I said, I can't bring that gate in. You see, gates do one of two things. Gates either keep people out, right? I'm putting a gate up because I don't want you in. Or it keeps people in, like in a prison. I remember going to a prison one time. And they shut the door behind me. And those of you that have had that experience, that's weird. It's like, I hope they open that door because I don't want to stay in. And I think the gates here are the gates of death. And death seems to be this capsule that takes people and sucks them in and doesn't give them back. It's, it's, it's not only physical, which it certainly is that we've had two people that went home to be with the Lord that are dead, that weren't dead last week at this time. And in the world's perspective, it's as though they got sucked into the gates of Hades and they're never going to be sucked back out. They're gone. I don't know if you believe that, but if you come to a funeral on Monday or Tuesday here at College Park Church and you see those people or their bodies here, here's going to be the proclamation of the word of God. And that is that God smashes gates of hell. He smashes gates of Hades and he takes people out of death. And you know the term that's used for that? This term resurrection, which I think is one of the great terms. That's the victory of God that says, I'll take the biggest. You you give me the greatest, hardest, most significant foe and it's death and I will defeat it. Matter of fact, I have already defeated it. (laughs) Well, here's my illustration. I went online 
the most significant gate I've ever seen in my life, and the picture isn't very good. But that's even partly by intent. I was in Dachau, Germany, and when I graduated from college, the next year a group of us guys said, hey, let's go tour Europe. It's a good time to do it. Didn't have any money, but you figure out how to do it. We went to Munich, Germany, and we decided to take the train out to Dachau, and we went into a prisoner of war camp. And that was pretty sobering because we went to, it was either this gate or one very similar to it. And we went in and saw the sites of where the barracks had been, that people had lived. And we saw pictures that were just, they just moved you of, of dead bodies and of emaciated people. And the gates were the symbol. That was the symbol of work in captivity. And then one of the great pictures of the Allies' victory in World War II or the gates coming down and the people being free. And yet the sobering thing was some of them had been so long in captivity, they didn't even know what it meant to be free. And and when I look at that gate, that reminds me a little bit of that gate of death that some of us are in even as we're alive. We're in the gates that death has swallowed us up and we need the regenerative work of the living God in Jesus Christ who smashes the gates of Hades and brings us from death to life. And then I'm, I'm so glad that the end of this world is not just I die, somebody puts me in a box and that's it. That the day is going to come when the trumpet will sound and God Almighty is going to come and he's going to complete what he started and he's going to complete his redemptive work and we'll say glory to God because he's finished it and he's resurrected his church and he is the ultimate triumph because the gates of hell cannot prevail against God Almighty. And man, am I glad for that. Well, let me quickly give you the last one and then I've got a couple of applications. The keys of the kingdom. (laughs) No controversy around this verse. Verse 19. So you see, remember, you got rocks, that's the greatest power. You've got gates, that's the greatest foe. And think of my Dachau gate. Now you got keys. It says, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The binding and loosing, which, by the way, is going to come up in chapter 18 as well, and maybe we'll have more time there to deal with this issue. But the keys are a statement of authority. And Jesus The king, the sovereign Lord of his church says, I'm going to give keys to you, Peter, and you're going to have authority. But your authority is going to be really your authority vested in you from me because I'm still the king. As a matter of fact, it would be better to translate it this way. Whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. The tense actually suggests that. So if you bind it on earth, it's already been bound in heaven. So the idea is this, church... You're supposed to go after finding out what's bound in heaven and bind it on earth or what's loosed in heaven and loose it on earth. And I think that refers to a number of things. The doctrine, I think it refers to discipline within the church. I think it refers to a church who's been given incredible responsibility by Jesus Christ to take the keys of the kingdom and to be responsible for his kingdom, not to be tyrants, because ultimately the king of the kingdom is Jesus Christ. My illustration for keys, this was an easy one. My keys. You know, I was looking at this and I thought, this says a lot about my life. It tells you the car that I drive. It tells you the place that I work. And then I've got four keys for my house and a couple of them don't work anymore. So you ask, why do I have them? And I say, I don't know. I asked my wife. She's, I'm sure, got a good answer. But I remember, I, I grew up in Maryland and my dad grew up in Florida. And so we used to get to go to Florida 
to Miami for winter, like Christmas, periodically. That was always fun, you know, as kids. You get in the car, and it's in your, you're in these coats, and, and then you start going, and you take one coat off and another, you know, get down to Florida. It's always great. So we had a good time. I remember one time coming back from Florida. I was 17 years old, just got my driver's license. And, and we, we drove all the way because we couldn't afford to stay in a motel. And my dad got tired. It was late at night. Stops the car, pulls it over, pulls out the keys, wakes me up and says, here. And I'm like, here what? <laughs> said, here's the keys I want you to drive. And I'm like, all I could think about in my life was driving. I mean, driving was the essence of life. I now have learned how to, except now my dad says, here's the keys to the family car, which in those days that was pretty significant. And not only that, but his wife was in the car, just so happened to be my mother. And then there were a couple of other incidentals, like my brother and sister were in the car too. <laughs> You know, and he said, here, you drive the next stint. And I'm like, I go in there and I turn the key and it goes, thinking, wow. And then I take off and there were, there were, there were a couple of emotions. I remember them pretty distinctly. One was, man, my dad trusted me with the keys to the family car. If you knew my dad, that was pretty significant. And he trusted me with the lives, not only of his family and loved ones, but of himself and so I'm driving down there with two senses. One, I've got power, but another that was moderated by I've got responsibility, right? Because I've got loved ones that the Father loves, and He expects me to take care of them like He would. And I think that nuance is there of the kingdom and the keys of the kingdom. But God's given us responsibility for His kingdom. And I've got a bunch of stuff there. Let me go to the takeaways. I've got four of them, and I'm going to do them real quick. College Park. We are at a unique and a significant time in the history of our church. And this building thing could get us really screwed up, you know? How's that for theological terminology? Could make us think we're bigger than we are, that we're better than we are, that it's about us. It could make us think, I'm not going to play the game with this stupid construction. I'm going to go someplace else. Or, and we could miss what the church is all about. And here's what the church is about. It's about this. It's about the rock. It's about the foundation. And the foundation is Jesus Christ. And we come into these buildings and the buildings are just a shell in which the people of God meet and they worship on a daily basis or a weekly basis. And some of you can come here every day if you'd like. And we worship the king who is the sovereign God. His name is Jesus. And I skip point number one unintentionally just because I know I'm out of time. But it's the question of so who do you think Jesus is? I mean, I, here's what Peter thought. Here's what Jesus thought. But don't miss today without... I don't care if you're a member. I don't care if you've been coming here forever. I don't care. None of those things. Here's what's important. You personally. Is Jesus just your really nice genie in a bottle? Or maybe even a little bit better. Or is he really the God of the universe? And if he is, then you submit yourself and you bow your knee and say, Jesus, you are Lord and I'm not. <laughs> and my life is yours. The third, the gates of hell... Wow, I am so glad that the gates of hell have been crushed by the kingdom because we're going to have two funerals at College Park on Monday and Tuesday and there are going to be corpses that are going to be here and we're going to say this and not just say it, but we're going to believe it that that's not the end of the story that these people trusted in Jesus Christ and the day will come when God is going to bring together in triumph. It's going to be the triumphal end of God's kingdom as he brings us to himself. <laughs> and, and you know what? The church is about crushing or being a part of God's kingdom, crushing gates of hell. Then the last part is the keys. And you know what? Church is not a game. And maybe one of the things about having construction is the people that think church is a game, maybe you're in the wrong place because there's games you can play elsewhere. 
the keys to the kingdom are pretty sobering. And it's probably, you could say, well, it's for leadership. It's just pastors and elders. And I'm going to say this. If you read Paul, you'll see that the church is the body. It's made up of all of us and all of our gifts coming together, taking the sober reality, the keys of the kingdom, and saying we have got to be stewards of God's kingdom and of his church. That's what we need to be about. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for who you are. Lord, I thank you for this text, and obviously my heart is just incredibly overwhelmed with the beauty of the rock, the the sobriety of the gates of hell, and yet your ability to overcome that, and then the sobriety of we are responsible, and you've given us that responsibility to build your kingdom. But God, you've also said you're going to do it. So even with our failure, even with whatever we do, you're going to succeed. Thank you for that. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here this morning, and the answer to the question is, who do they believe that Jesus Christ is, they would settle that in their hearts for now and for eternity, for your glory and for their good. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. If you have a question about who you think Jesus is, I'd love to talk to you. There'll be other people that'll be up here. Thank you very much. God bless you.